if you uh, are sick, you're going to show, it in most cases, uh, some external symptoms of your illness. And if you are uh, one of those blessed people that have a good doctor, all right, you can go to the doctor's office, set up an appointment, uh, and in short order, your good doctor is going to be able to look at uh, a lot of your uh, external symptoms, maybe with a couple of uh, other tests, your vital signs, among some others, and they're going to be able to, in short order, dwindle down the possibilities to your illness to uh, some very specific options. And, and from there, a good doctor is going to be able to put you on a, a regimen that is going to lead you uh, forward in a healthy life. Now, it's quite similar to uh, the health of the Christian life. Uh, a lot like my illnesses, they often have uh, external symptoms. My spiritual life, although begins at the heart, as the, as the Sermon on the Mount has been uh, hammering into our lives, that it is all about the heart and the heart transformation that has to take place for anyone to be in right relationship with God. There are often external symptoms that, if we look at and diagnose correctly, will help us see the disposition and the state of the heart, which is really where we get at here in Matthew chapter 6. And if you're not there, I want to encourage you to open it to Matthew chapter 6, starting there in verse 19. Uh, but one of the problems uh, with determining one's spiritual health by looking at symptoms uh, that you would experience or perceive in your life is that you would be like one of those stubborn people who get sick and they don't want to admit there's a problem. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, you know, you could be throwing up and bleeding out and somebody says, you are obviously showing some problems. You should go to the doctor and they look at you and say, it's allergies, okay? Um, you, you, rec you know these kind of people. Now, the problem with those people are uh, they're in danger. Their lives are in danger, but they will not even recognize that the symptoms on the outside show real, true problems on the inside. Now, equally in the life of the Christian, uh, we have to recognize there are some things external to ourselves that show the dispositions of the heart. And if we're unwilling to admit to them, if we're unwilling to look at some of the symptoms on the outside of our lives to determine and gauge the spiritual health that we have in our hearts, we are too are in danger. In danger of a multitude of realities. Uh, one of those really important ones is to believe you're saved when you're really not because the external realities of your life prove that there's not been a heart change. Or even as the Christian, to recognize you think you're living from the Lord, much like we see in Matthew 7 when people say, Lord, Lord, didn't we not do all these really wonderful things in your name? And really they find themselves uh, misled to believing that they believe and think something that really they've never uh, they've never lived for, they've never applied to their life. And so secondly, that, that's really the problem is that even people in here who may be Christians are going to lose out and miss out on so many of the blessings and rewards God has for those who are faithful in eternity simply because you're not willing to check the barometer of your life, the external symptoms in your life to ask yourself, am I spiritually healthy today? Am I, spiritually, uh, am I spiritually well? Do I have a spiritual vitality that is uh, indicative of someone who is pursuing the Lord? And Jesus gives us, as he's setting up this next set of teachings uh, here, starting in verse 19, he's using real external features of the life of a person to determine, in large part, the health of their heart. Next week, we're going to talk about, if the Lord wills, anxiety and the way that we deal with that and how that ends up showing the disposition of the healthy heart. Uh, this week, we're looking at how Jesus talks about using your time, your thoughts, and your money. And depending on how those are utilized in your life is indicative of the spiritual health of the person. And really, what that boils down to for us this morning is that even as Christians, we must regularly examine what we pursue with our time, money, and thoughts to determine our spiritual well-being. And if you won't be one of those stubborn, sick people, and you, would willing, you are willing to be open to checking a checkup for your life, I pray that this sermon would be helpful for you to recognize maybe some patterns that you need to change, some uh, places of disobedience that you would be willing through the power of the Holy Spirit to correct, that you would be able to move forward uh, with a faithful, healthy uh, Christian faith. So if you haven't already, turn with me there to Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. 
Let's read about how Jesus tells us to deal with our money and our possessions. Starting there, get your eyes down with me there on verse 19. Here Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Right? If you followed us long, we'd like to point out the places in Scripture that, that are verbs, that are second-person imperatives, which means they are verbs that tell you you need to do something. And one of those verbs we find right here in verse 19, it's the word lay, right? If you uh, would, go ahead and underline or mark that there in your Bible, and you recognize that Jesus is not just talking to hear himself speak. He's telling you and I to do something here. And the first thing he's telling us to do is do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So really what you see here... Is Jesus lining up the usual suspects in the battle to preserve our possessions. Interestingly enough, the things that they were dealing with thousands of years ago are still in line with a lot of the things that you and I deal with here in the battle to preserve our possessions. Uh, in the 9 o'clock, no one has had this in their house, but how many of you guys had or grew up with a cedar closet in your house? Raise your hand. Okay, three of us. This must be. It's probably because we're from East Texas. That may be the problem. Right? Uh, anyway, uh, cedar closets are to keep moths out. They're to keep the bugs that eat your clothes from getting into your clothes. And so a lot of people have a cedar closet to put kind of valuable clothes or clothes they only use seasonally to keep them protected from moths. Well, it's the same reason why Jesus brings up moths here. Uh, because unlike a lot of our clothes that go in and out of fashion, uh, clothes in that time period were often expensive. Uh, and because they were so expensive, people weren't able to buy much of them. Fashion didn't change very much. And so Clothes could be passed down. They're very expensive and very necessary. And people's clothes, not unlike today, really showed kind of the stature of someone's possessions and wealth. And Jesus wants to remind everyone that even the smallest larvae and bugs come in and they wipe away all of those clothes you have. I mean, you've got to put mothballs everywhere or they're going to come in and they're going to eat your clothes up. And so Jesus is using things that we recognize in our culture uh, that destroy the possessions that we have. Things like rust, or corrosion, even that Greek word there. It's not just talking about rust that you would see oxidizing metal, uh, but it is indicative of any kind of corrosiveness that would take what you have and make it undesirable. Whether that's mold and mildew, whether that's rust or discoloration, or you, whatever it is, all of it is trying to help you see that everything that you have is liable to corruption and decay. And obviously thieves, that's something that we still work really hard in our culture to keep from happening, isn't it? Uh, and the problem often with laying up possessions for yourself here that Jesus is letting us see before he attaches us to spiritual principles and spiritual realities, what he's doing is he is approaching the logic of existence. He is approaching the logic of just, you know this from a general revelatory perspective. General revelation, which means what I can know about creation and God just by looking around, you recognize that things fade, things corrupt, things decay. And Jesus is saying, hey, here's a great place to start when you're thinking about your possessions. Before we even connect this to eternally uh, kingdom-minded things, and to, before we connect this to God's eschatological kingdom, let's just lay this out in a very fundamental, reasonable perspective. Everything you have is going to rot, corrupt, and decay. And you spend so much time and money on things that are going to rot that you have to spend even more time and money to keep the things that are going to corrupt from being corrupted. You buy a house. You put an alarm on that house so thieves won't break in and steal. So I bought a big expensive home. Now I'm putting a nice expensive alarm on my house so things, thieves won't break in and steal. I understand that my house is corrosive and corruptible. So now I have house insurance. So if something happens to my house, I can then file a claim that I've been spending thousands of dollars on over the last years. And then I can go to, I can go to the claims and I can go to the insurance company. And then I can get more money to go back and buy more things that are going to be my house and my car. And now I'm going to spend more money to make sure that things that have previously happened happen to all of my things won't happen again to my things in the future. <sighs> Isn't that life? I mean, and do you recognize the vanity, as uh, Solomon says, 
in Ecclesiastes, the vanity of a kind of pursuit of life that exists with things on things on things, and I need things to protect the things that I already have. This is not a healthy way to live. And Jesus, before he even attaches this to spiritual realities, he just says, don't you have enough sense just as a human being to recognize this is not the way to live life? And then he says, here's the proper perspective of treasure and possessions in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. There's your other second person imperative, same as the first one. We don't want to lay up treasure here on earth because we recognize that it's going to amount to nothing in the end. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So there it is, lay up. You can circle that one. It's what Christ wants you to do with your things. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Like here is something you can take to the bank if you look at scripture and you read it properly and apply it to your life. Everything I have here in this life is going to be corrupted, is going to be destroyed, it's going to be taken away. Even there's plenty of Proverbs and there's, there's plenty of Psalms that talk about what a dead man takes with him when he goes and it's absolutely nothing. The poor and the rich man all have the same and when they die, they both leave with nothing. The reality of this is when we apply this to our lives, we recognize that there is a way to leave and have nothing to show for it. And there is a way to leave in my life in which there is something to look forward to in the kingdom of God based upon my faithfulness unto God's commands. And one of those faithful commands that God calls us to is to lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Because what we read in scripture is that there is an inheritance waiting for the people of God that is incorruptible, undefiled and imperishable. Did you notice the did you notice the antonyms of those words in scripture compared to these words in scripture that these things will be destroyed by moth, by rust and by thieves, but there is an inheritance waiting for God's people that is incorruptible, undefiled, being protected by the power of God. So we recognize these two things to be true because we see it in the inspiration of Scripture, breathed out by God, given to us to utilize, to guide us in life and godliness in this age. Now, I say that because here's one of the problems that we have in sometimes interpreting Scripture and only attaching spiritual meaning to it. If you look at this text and you only want to attach spiritual meaning to it, you're going to end up on the wrong side of the meaning of the text. And here's what I mean. When you read verse 19 and it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, you immediately thought about your house, your car, your money, your retirement, your savings account. You thought about all those things, didn't you? You ought to, because rightly so. That's what Jesus is trying to get the, uh, the reader or the audience to recognize in the text, as I'm talking about real things. One of the problems that we get to by only recognizing that there's a, or at least trying to confess that there's only a spiritual meaning to verse 20, is that when he says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, you immediately go to nebulous, ethereal realities that have no bearing on real, tangible things of your life. And so what you do is you detach where Jesus wants you to go, and you go to somewhere Jesus is not asking you to go. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus is asking you to take a real hard look at your legit assets, your finances, your property, and your possessions. And he's saying, stop storing that stuff here because it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be gone. You need to take those exact things. Did you see that? The exact things, right? Not, not I got to go figure out what more things he's talking about because it can't be these things because I can't lift up my you know, Dodge 2500 Cummins diesel 24 valve truck into heaven. I don't have one of those. <laughs> Okay, moving on. I can't lift that up into heaven. I can't. It's too heavy. Right? I, it won't happen. The reality is that won't happen. So if that's not what it means, it can't possibly be talking about real things. It has to be talking about spiritual things. Well, that's where you're going to be wrong in getting to the ends of this text. Because Jesus' intentions of this text is to get you to think about your real things and get you to think about what you're doing with real things that are going to have real implications about a real eternity. And one of the problems is, is we often don't think right about eternity. We think, like many cartoons and TV shows and movies, that we're going to be floating around in heaven on puffy clouds wearing obscure, strange underwear, and we're going to have a harp. We're going to be playing it on the clouds, which is not at all 
what eternity is going to be like for you and I. Scripture says that we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth. And often when we talk about the context of the new earth and eschatological realities, we recognize that earth is going to be renewed. All right, And we recognize the world is also going to be destroyed by fire. Okay, And much like a forest that is destroyed by fire, what comes out of it? New life, right? It is important that fires happen in forests so that there can be a healthy forest ecosystem. In the same way, as the world is going to be destroyed by fire, there's going to be a renewed earth. And that is where we are going to dwell for eternity. As God pours out his justice and destroys the earth with fire, he will then renew the world. And the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will come and will rest here at a physical place. Does that change a little bit? of your mind as you think about the real physical realities of eternity, we're not just talking about spiritual, ethereal things that have no impact on your life. To put that last nail in the coffin of this illustration, to recognize, do you know that you are going to be resurrected with a new body, a physical body? In the same way, Scripture says that Jesus was resurrected bodily, you and I will also be resurrected bodily, bodily. We're not going to be wandering, uh, you know, uh, transparent spirits floating around in eternity. You're going to have a real body. It's going to be the body you have now, but renewed and perfected. What I want to show you is just how physical and tangible eternity is going to be in the life of the believer. Well, and the life of the unbeliever, but that's a whole other sermon. You have a real physical life with real uh, implications of this life being shown evident in the next life. Because if you can do that and you recognize there's going to be an eternity where there's going to be real implications in my life, I look at this text and say, that makes sense that I'm laying up for myself treasures in heaven because God wants me not to be focusing on my kingdom here that's, trans- that's transient, that's fleeting, and is corruptible. And he wants me to then invest all the things I have here as his servant and his steward into real eternal realities that are tangible and physical and real. Does that mean I get to trade a truck for a truck or a million dollars for a million dollars? I'm not going to say that. I don't believe that. But I am also not at liberty in my interpretive skills to say what is going to become of your treasure in heaven. But what I do know because of the text is that there will be some. And some will have more than others, according to Corinthians. Some will be building their lives with wood, hay, and straw, and others will be building on the kingdom of the foundation of Jesus Christ with gold, silver, and precious jewels. And it'll all be at the bema seat of Christ, uh, burned up, and what is left will be, in some form or fashion, a reward given unto you into eternity. Real, physical, tangible realities of your stewardship here have real tangible implications of e- in your eternal reality. That's important for you to know so that we stop looking at text and just saying, well, he just wants me to spiritually think about things, his things more than my things. No, he wants you to recognize everything here is his things. You've been looking at them as your things, and he wants you to take the things that you've been looking like at your things and make sure you recognize they're his things and then use his things for his kingdom while you're here. That's called a stewardship. Right, that's called you utilizing his things for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. And he promises that as you lay those treasures up here on earth, because you're not making them about you, you're making them about him, he's going to reward his people. And if you don't like the idea of rewards, you're not going to like the book of Matthew. You're not going to like the rest of the New Testament. And you're surely not going to like the eternal realities that you'll find yourself face to face with when your father, who loves you and cares about you, wants to reward you for your faithfulness. Reward you commensurate of one-to-one of your faithfulness? Absolutely not. Every reward you're going to get in eternity is not commensurate to your faithfulness. They are gifts that completely outweigh your faithfulness because even your best faithfulness is is dirty rags to God. But he recognizes that your faithfulness unto him, uh, he wants to reward and honor as you're living life in the flesh here, tempted by Satan and your own sinful proclivities. And he wants you to recognize as you say no to your flesh here and the schemes of Satan here, he wants you to recognize he sees it in secret and he will reward you when the time comes. Isn't that encouraging? That you can look at your life now and say, there's some substance to what I'm doing in my life today. Instead of trying to only attach to these ethereal realities to your faith and not having any real drive and motivation to do anything because you have no real substance to recognize God wants you to utilize your physical things here because he has got real things in mind for eternity. And a lot of it depends on how you're going to utilize what God's done in your life here so that there will be 
in your life, treasure and reward stored up for you there. Now, I hope that has at least convinced you to do this, and it's point number one. You need to invest substantively in your eternity. Invest substantively in your eternity. I use the word substantively because I want to draw your attention to the physical reality of the way that you need to invest. Am I saying there's a magic box somewhere that if you put $100 in it, it'll, ima- it'll magically zoom into heaven? I'm not telling you that. That is crazy. That'd be psychotic. But what I am saying is, uh, does God want more missionaries sent out through the world? You tell me. Yes. Does it take money to do that? Yes. Okay. Do you have money? Yes. Does God want you to use your money to do that? Yes. All right. Okay. I don't have to illustrate that anymore. Okay. God expects us to invest our goods and treasures to practically expand God's kingdom here on earth as we await for the return of Christ. And all our investments here that we store there are going to be in some way awaiting our arrival. And that's a promise you get straight out of Scripture. And we see, even as you turn to Luke 12 with me, uh, those who don't think like this, those who want to utilize their things for themselves and the way God thinks about people who want to use possessions and money for their own benefit and they're not thinking about the things of the kingdom. Go to Luke chapter 12. All right, starting there in verse 13. They're starting verse 13. Jesus is teaching the crowd. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Which I already want you to see the foolishness and the selfishness of this person. That he wants to interrupt Jesus as he's teaching kingdom principles. And he says, hey, can we make this about right here and right now with me and my brother? I need you to be the arbiter and the judge because I want my money and I want it now. J.G. Wentworth, okay? I want my money and I want it now. And this is what he's saying. My brother, tell him to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, an insatiable desire to want more and more and more. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. You think so often, and I think so often, that our, our wealth, our position, and our own Uh, our own mindset and calculations have everything to do with how much do I have? Do I have enough? Can I get more? I need a raise this year to keep up with the much I'm going to spend next year. Those kind of things. And Jesus, those who thought about life this way and like possessions in this way, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Isn't that wonderful? And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barn and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be married. Be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich Toward God. Did you see the parallel from this in Luke and Matthew 6 where we found ourselves this morning? The reality that we see here is God wants us not to be thinking about how much more we can spend on ourselves and how much more we can do for ourselves, but how we can even use the abundance that God may bless us with or even the little that God has blessed us with for him, for his kingdom, and be rich toward him to invest in the things that he wants you investing in. For some of us, the struggle when it comes to diagnosing our problem, our, our sickness when it comes to possessions, uh, is materialism, that I want more, that I'm about the things of the world, and that looks like this. I'm always online shopping. And anybody? I look at your browser history, your search history, and what I see, Amazon, 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 Pinterest, 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 Etsy, 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 uh, sports, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I can get on the guys, too. I will in a minute, actually. Uh, <laughs> Uh, waiting for the new tech gadget, guys. You look, you wait, you're always waiting to see what Apple's bringing out, and you guys that hate Apple's always looking at what Andro- Android's bringing out, and then the Apple and the Android people in the church get in a fight because they're more children of Apple and Android than children of the Lord, okay? All right. All right. Uh, people who, they just want more and more and more. I'm buying, you know, my truck. I want it lifted just a little bit more. I think it could use some nice new tires. You know, I want some accessories. You know, I'd like to soup it up a little bit. I have a project car in the garage. That, that's not a project car. It's an idle car. 
okay? Now, I kind of slammed us enough there, right? Uh, well, let me go to another group first, and then I'll smooth it out. All right? For others, it's really not material things. Some of you and some of us, particularly when we were single and we can travel for cheap, you were like, I don't have a lot of money, but what I have is a desire to travel, the desire to, to, for experiences, the desire for vacations that aren't designed to refresh me so that I can come back and run hard for the Lord, but they're designed to focus on me. And we're using even the experiences that God has designed for us to draw attention to him, for us to rest so we can focus on him, and we've designed them for our own pleasures and our own desires to want, want, want for me, me, me. Now, with all of that, I'm not asserting that possessions, money, and vacations are inherently bad. I'm not saying that. As a matter of fact, uh, the Bible doesn't say that. But what the Bible does say is when you make your possessions and your money and your trips about you, and they take the place of your sacrificial commitments unto the Lord, then it becomes covetousness. It becomes idolatry, which is what Exodus 20, verse 3 commands us not to do. We shall have no other gods besides him. We shall have no other, second commandment, graven images. We shall look at nothing in the place of God except for God alone. And the problem that Jesus wants us to recognize over and over again is we look at our possessions and our materials as if they are God. And you say, well, no, I don't. God's up there. My possessions are down here. Yes, but you recognize what an idol is. Am I willing to sacrifice for it? Am I willing to spend money on it? Am I willing to ignore other things for it? Am I willing to make my calendar around it? Okay. That's called an idol. Because it's the very things that, that, that God calls you to make your life revolve around. Your calendar ought to revolve around God. Your money ought to revolve around God. You ought to be sacrificing things so that you can do more things for God. See, that's because he's, the, he's God and that should be what is reigning in your life is the things of God, not the things of the world. And so those things become sin when we take place, when they take the place of God. Really, where Jesus is pushing us in this text is what we value the most. Because what you value the most, you're going to focus your time and your energy on. And Jesus begins using some metaphors, some idioms here, starting in verse 22, that shows us the need to have the right focus in our lives. Look at verse 22. There in verse 22, it says, The eye is the lamp of the body. And really, this is Semitic language, and so it's hard often as we're reading these verses to take things that were Semitic done in their original language, uh, and it was hard for us to draw meaning out of it, much like if all of our writings and stuff had gone away here in the 21st century, and they didn't have any uh, access to our writings and our stories in three or 4,000 years, somebody says, they've been saying it's raining cats and dogs down there. It's like, I don't want to go to that place. Texas sounds like a dreadful place to live because raining cats and dogs has a meaning in our context that is not fully uh, clearly known in other contexts unless we explain it to them. In the same way, we see that here in the Semitic language in verses 22 uh, and 23, but it is at least readily available to us enough to draw some conclusions like this. The eye is a lamp of the body. Your eye is the gateway to what is led into your heart and mind. Imagine this. What you invest in with your mind and your heart and your thoughts, have they not first come through your eyeballs? Everything that you think about and the things you pursue come from here first. So it stands the reason that if you will be careful of what you let into your eyeballs, you are going to have a healthy life. And it says as much here. Like if your eye is healthy, the Greek word haplos, which in the King James Version, that, that word is rendered single. And NASB, that word's rendered clear. So if it's healthy, single, and clear, you're going to have a body full of light. And what does this mean to be healthy, single, and clear? That means you are single-minded. You have eyes and a heart that are single-minded. You're focused on one thing. Imagine that. Now, opposed to having eyes that are wandering around every time you're walking around and you're just wondering about the next thing or the next thing on the shelf or the next person that walks by me, instead of having wandering eyes, I'm going to have eyes that are focused. I'm going to be single-minded is what the text is getting us to understand. We need to be single-minded in our pursuit of God. This word also may carry with it the idea of generosity, which if I'm single-minded towards God, I'm going to be generous to God. So it makes sense, doesn't it? I'm going to be single-minded. And if I'm single-minded, the text says that my whole body will be full of light. 
That is, my whole life is going to be full of kingdom intentions, kingdom appetites, and kingdom affections. But what keeps me from having kingdom appetites, kingdom affections, and kingdom intentions is that when my eyes are double-minded, when I want God, but I want some other things too. I want to prioritize the things of God, but I want to prioritize my things. That's double-minded. That's the eye. That's the eye problem we see here, and you see it here in verse 23. But if your eye is bad, that means if it's double-minded, it's always one, they're always wandering around looking at what's next. It comes with the idea that it's stingy, that you're selfish. It's self-focused. If your eye is bad in those ways, your whole body will be full of darkness. Think about that. What are the things you're looking at? If I looked at your search history on your phone, if I followed you around and look at what drew your eyes to things throughout the day, would it be things that were good and godly, or they be things that you would rather people not know is what you're looking at and what you're paying attention to? Now, you wonder, if those are the things going into your eyeballs, why your heart is sick, why, the, why your intentions are wrong, why your affections are drawn to things that aren't of God. Like why you don't invest in the things of the kingdom because your whole life and in in your heart is investing in things here because you're making it about you. You're making it about what you can get. You have double-minded. And the problem with that is when you look at the things that you, you intake and you recognize there are some bad things in there. There are some bad things that I intake. And some of us, some of us can progressively say all the things I intake are bad. Well, the problem that Jesus tells us is in the end of verse 23. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Basically saying this, if what you see in your life is bad, how bad does it really get? Like, if you're seeing some of the things in your life that are dark, ask yourself, how much darker is it going to get? It's what this is saying. The physical evidence of your spiritual health is bad. How deep does your disease really go when it comes to what you are focusing on? Are you being double-minded? See, that's the problem in our Christian culture today is double-mindedness. There is so much double-mindedness going on in our world, in our culture, that people say, I want to follow God, but I want to follow my friends. I want to follow God, but I want to follow the trends. I want to follow God, but I want to follow my feelings. I want to follow God, but I don't want to miss the game today, and I really hope Pastor wraps this up by 1230 so I don't miss it. You're double-minded. And the problem with double-mindedness, here is the slipperiness of double-mindedness. The slipperiness of double-mindedness is part of your mind is focused on God. And so you're always able to manipulate your way out of a situation by proving in some way or some fashion that you're focusing on God because you're double-minded. You can always go to that part of your mind that is focused on God and people, who are they to judge? Who are you to judge? Look, I'm focused on God. But is it yes, but look at the intention of the heart. Look at the double-mindedness. You are focused on God, but look at how much time you've been focused on things of the world. Things that have to do with mammon, which is the Greek Semitic word for, for possessions and money. You're focused more on the things of the world than you are of God, and you have a double mind. You won't focus on God. People, the problem in the Christian faith, in particular in our generation, is people think they can balance personal desires with God's desires. And you can't do those things. Right, scripture, and you say, well, does the scripture say that, you know, that God wants to give me the desires of my heart? Did you read the part before that where it says focus on him? Let your thoughts be his thoughts, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart? Well, of course he wants to give you the desires of your heart if your thoughts are his, and your desires are his desires because he's going to give you what he desires. He didn't promise you to give you the desires of your double-minded heart. He promised to give you the desires of a single-minded heart devoted to him. And so for us, we got to make sure that we're not trying to balance my personal desires with God's desires. Because unless we're so foolish and arrogant, which we, including me, sometimes are, to say, well, God should always give me what I want because I'm always wanting to do what God wants. Are you arrogant and foolish enough to think that's true about you? Because unless you are, then you recognize there's plenty of times in your life where you're going to have to say no to yourself to say yes to God. You're not going to be able to get what you want and get what God wants you to want. You're often going to have to say no so that you can do the things that God wants you to do. And that is a step one to getting us laser-focused on God's word, laser-focused on God's kingdom. And that's really point number two. You need to stay laser-focused. Double-mindedness is this idea, like I shared at the 9 o'clock, 
where I'm like an iguana, right? I got one eye in that direction and one eye in that direction, and I'm trying to get the best of both worlds. And your eyes just don't work like that. The problem is if you think your eyes work like that, what you're going to figure out is you're going to be trying to look through your peripheries, and what's going to happen is the first thing you desire the most, you're going to start tilting your head that way. And over time, you're going to recognize you're not looking anything at God. You're looking at all the things that you want. And that your double-mindedness is always going to draw you away from God and to the things of this world. And if you will not stay laser-focused, you are promised to focus on the things of the world and not on things of God. Because the things of this world are too loud for you not to be looking when you hear them going off. We see this even in 1 Kings 18, verse 21. If you graduated Sunday school, you may know this text. It's when Elijah stood before the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and you have King Ahab in Israel had turned away from God and started going after idols. And uh, here you have Elijah going to Ahab and said, here's what you're going to do. Because Ahab and Elijah, they did not like each other. Okay? Uh, he, yeah, anyway. Uh, they didn't like each other. And he said, hey, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get all your prophets, and you're going to bring them on over here. And we're going to make a big old pile of wood. We're going we're gonna to sacrifice some bulls. We're going to put them on top of there. And you're going to get your 450 uh, uh, priests of Baal, and you're going to try to get them to consume this with fire. And they did it, and they, looked, they acted a fool. They were doing it for hours. They couldn't have anything happen. And then it's Elijah's turn. He says, drench this with water. Pour water all over this. Build a moat around it. Let the moat fill up with water. And they do it. And he says, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. He did it three times. They poured water on it. Because he wanted them to know that my God doesn't have to have a dry pile of wood to prove to you he's God. And he then called fire down from heaven as he called upon the name of the Lord, who is faithful and steadfast. And then God sent fire and consumed the, the, consumed the pile, consumed the sacrifice, and it says licked up the water out of the moat. Okay, He was proving that God is the only God and there is no other God beside him. Now, before he did that, I want you to recognize what he said to them first in verse 21. He said, before this situation happened where the fire came down. He said, Elijah came near to all the people and said this, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. There's single-mindedness, right? Either you're going to follow God and you're going to do the things of God and you're not going to turn from the left or to the right. Your iguana eyes aren't going to be looking left and right. You're going to be looking forward and you're going to say, I'm going that way. Regardless of the implications of my popularity or my schedule or my calendar or my bank account, I'm going that way. I'm not looking any other way. But the people, and it shows you the hard-heartedness of the people, the people did not answer him a word, which is often the problem even in our culture. When we're brought up to things like this, which as you're listening to this, I hope you're being able to diagnose the health of your own faith. And I hope you're not unwilling to own up to the reality of your spiritual well-being, like these people who said, I'm not even going to answer that. I'm going to plead the fifth. You know what pleading the fifth does? Well, I'm not even going to get into the judicial system. All right. Uh, do you know what not owning up to it does? Shows just how guilty you really are. And these people recognized that they were guilty. And here's, here is the worst thing about it all. And this is where you and I are going to apply ourselves directly to verse number 21. These people worship Baal and still call themselves the people of Yahweh. You recognize that. They called themselves, we're the people of God, we're the people of the promise, we're Abraham's offspring. That's us. But yet they went and they worshiped Baal. In the same way, the Christians, even in this day, we say we're the people of God, we're the people of the promise, right? We're the bride of Christ. But yet we're double-minded and we find ourselves pursuing the things of the world and not the things of God. But yet you still call yourself a child of God. That should make you wonder about your spiritual well-being. Staying laser-focused. Here's how I stay laser-focused. An application that I use in Scripture that I apply to my life is that in order for me to stay laser-focused, I need to uh, make sure that I'm making principled decisions in my walk. Principled decisions. Uh, I can illustrate it in this way. Uh, it's, it's equivalent to you being somebody who doesn't make principled decisions, that you get to a crossroads in your life and determining the circumstance and the situation at hand will determine which way I go at the crossroads, right? Uh, I'm going to a crossroad. Faithfulness says go straight. 
The easy way is to the left, and I just had a really hard day today. I'm emotionally bankrupt today. I'm exhausted. Uh, Things have just not been going my way, and I want to do what's easy for me today. God will forgive me, and I'm just going to go do that, and tomorrow we'll reconsider what way I ought to go. But faithfulness says go straight, and I'm just not going to do it. That is a decision based upon emotion and circumstance. A principled decision is before I even go outside, knowing that I'm about to hit some crossroads, I have a playbook that I recognize how I'm going to make decisions. And me and my wife do this all the time. We say, hey, if this situation comes up in our life, how are we going to respond to it before we even get there? Because I know it's coming, and I want to make sure that we do what God wants us to do before we ever get there. And so I want to make a principled decision. Let me give you like a really good goofy one that's practical. Uh, We have a rule in our house. Uh, If anyone asks us to go to dinner or to spend an evening with them, we will say yes, principally. Principally, we will say yes every time unless we have spent five days out in a row, right? Or somebody else has already asked us to hang out, and so we have to say no to them. Even if we want to hang out with them more, we have to say we are going to keep our commitment to spend time with them. It's a principle. You know why? Because it allows us, when we get to that crossroad, barring an emergency or a a bad situation, which is an emergency, we're going to remain principled in our decision-making because it allows us to be above reproach and single-minded. I don't get to the crossroads and say, well, you know, we're just not feeling it today. We, we want to be more about ourselves than about the people that God has brought us into our church. When I don't make principled decisions, I make me-centered decisions. we got to make principled decisions so we make laser-focused decisions for the Lord and so that we make sure that we aren't being preferential, like the book of James tells us not to do, by picking to hang out with these people opposed to these people. We make principled decisions. And we do this in as many areas in our life as we find, and we continue making those. Because if you're going to be making decisions in the moment based upon your circumstances or your emotion, you're going to have a really hard time staying laser-focused on God because you will spend most of your time being laser-focused on your own needs and your own desires. A lot of ways that that can be applied to our life in a lot of areas. But Jesus moves on with a final metaphor of the duplicity of a double-minded mentality in verse 24. Look at verse 24. It says there in verse 24 that no one can serve two masters. Right? We, we recognize that taking direction from two masters uh, will make us cease from being obedient to one or the other. You can't do it. You can't do them both at the same time. Like for instance, uh, one asks you to do something and you're doing it, and the other person's asked you to do something, you're not going to be able to do them both equally obediently. As a matter of fact, when I was in ministry early on, there was a time in my ministry where I had two supervisors. And I found myself not being able to serve them both because the minute that one asked me to do something, I had to immediately disobey something that the other person told me to do to do what they wanted me to do. And I couldn't serve both of them. Even though that my, I wanted to here and here and here I wanted to, but I couldn't. And Jesus is saying the same thing. You may want to serve God, but you can't serve two masters. You can only serve one. And I had to go to him and I had to say, listen, I can't serve both of you. You're making me a hypocrite and you're making me sin because I can't please both of you. And in the same way, we're hypocrites when we think we can serve our own flesh by the possessions that we have and serve God when we make things about ourselves. And God says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And it says, you can't serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And that's really it's going to come down to. You're, going to. you're either going to be one of those people who you look at God and you say, I despise God because he doesn't let me have any fun, or you're going to be the person who says, I despise money because it always draws my attention away from God, so what I want to do, instead of focusing on my money, I want to make sure that my money serves God, which is point number three. You need to make sure that your money serves God. The best way to not have two masters to slay the idea of idolatry in your house when it comes to money and possessions is to make sure in every single way your money is a slave to God. That your money is enslaved to God just like you're enslaved to God, which is the context of serving two masters. You're going to be a slave to money or you're going to be a slave to God. And the best way practically to make sure you're a slave to God and not of money is to make sure that you and your money is enslaved to God. We see this played out in Mark 10. I won't turn you there, but you can jot it down. Starting in verse 17, 
uh, which really is the parable of the rich young ruler in Mark's account. And the short of it is simply this, that he says, and I want you to pay attention because this is, this is often us, I love the Lord. Like, I want to follow you, Jesus. I, I have been doing the things of the Lord my whole life. I go to church. I go to life group. I serve. I read the Bible. I'm doing all these things because I love God. And he says, here's what you do. Go sell everything you have. Take the money. Give it to the poor. And then come on. Let's go. And he, head drooping down, walks off kicking the sand because he says, I can't do that. I have way too much to lose it all to follow God. And he may look like he was devoted to God, but he was devoted to himself and his things. And we can be deceptive in our own world and our own lives by saying we are devoted to God. When it comes down to it, if God is all you had, would it really be enough? And are you living right now with your money? that proves that God is sufficient and enough for you. When we look at your possessions, do we make sure, as you look at them, to recognize Christ is sufficient for me. The things that I have, my home, all those things are utilized to serve God and his kingdom. Is it bad having, having nice things? Is it bad having money? It's bad when your nice things have you and your money has you. You need to make sure that your money serves God. And we're not like the rich young ruler who thought he was serving God. But when Jesus really hit that sore spot, like we're doing this morning, when he hit that really sensitive spot, turned out that he was somebody who thought that he loved God, but he loved his money more. And Jesus says, you can't serve both. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve money. So what are some ways, some ways of application to make your money serve God? Well, here's three M's that are going to help you make sure that your money serves God. One, you need to make ends meet. I mean, there, there's a fundamental truth. You got to make sure that you're making enough money to take care of your family. Uh, we, here's a biblical precedent, particularly for you men in the room, you husbands, you leaders of your household. Uh, the Bible says if you don't take care of your immediate family, you're worse off than an unbeliever. So you better bet uh, that you got to make enough money to take care of your family. Make ends meet. Make sure you take care of the basic needs of your family, and you're going to do that, we'll learn next week, by first trusting and focusing on God. But you're going to recognize that you got to have a job and you have to labor in such a way where you can bring home the bacon in a way that your family has means to live. It's a very godly thing. Okay, now what that means is I'm not looking for the job that pays the most. I'm not looking for the job that puts me up the corporate ladder as much as I would like to go. What it means is I got a job that takes care of the job. Because my job is to take care of my family and that means I got to have a job to do my job. Second, you need to monitor your cash flow. Your second M, monitor your, your cash flow. Like some of us, if we're not careful, we end up being those people who if we ever check our ledger, if we ever check our bank account or our statements, it's either when something really bad has happened or we just don't. And we just kind of hope it all evens out at the end of the month. The problem with that is if you want to do things the way God wants you to do them, if you want to deal with your money in an appropriate way, you got to monitor your cash flow. You want to make sure your money's serving God? You should go back to that ledger and say, is it serving God? Is my money serving God? Am I serving God in this way? For instance, uh, there are two different ways you can buy coffee. One serving you, one serving the other. Okay, here's an example. Did I go buy coffee this week at the coffee shop so I could take someone through discipleship? Or did I go buy coffee this week at the coffee shop because I wanted to get away from my home and my kids and my spouse? Okay. Those may be the same amount of money on both sides, but one says I'm focusing on God's kingdom, and the other one says I'm focusing on my kingdom. And so when we go through that ledger, we have to ask, why did I do that for? To what purpose and to what ends was this purchase for? I'm not saying don't get yourself closed. I mean, you got to recognize that's not the heart of the sermon. But the heart of the sermon is we're getting to the heart of us when it comes to our things and our possessions. All right, thirdly, last M. You need to multiply your generosity. And this is really what's going to uh, regulate or govern, if you will, uh, what, the, what comes in and out of your bank account. If you're one of those people, which we all are, you got to figure out where your money's going to go. If, if you've listened to our Money uh, Matters uh, from our Family Matters Conference, that uh, seminar, you listened to a sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago, you got to ask yourself the question, how much of God's money should I keep? That's how you got to think about it. Not how much of my money do I want to give to God. How much of God's money do I keep and I'm going to give the rest to him in some way or another. That's the proper way to think about money. 
Now, the right way to then address that is asking every year, as God blesses me, I want to multiply my generosity. So in my wife and I's life, what we want to do is say, every year I'm going to give more than I gave last year, barring an absolute emergency in my job or existential crisis. We want to make sure every year we're giving more to God and to others than we did the year before. And that takes practical uh, reasonable financial decisions. We got to spend, and it often doesn't come because I get a giant raise. It becomes, we're going to spend less on ourselves this year. We're going to spend more on God's things. And for all of us, if we want to make sure our money is serving God, we got to make sure that we're serving God. Because if we're serving ourselves, it's going to come to the fact that I am going to use my money to serve me. The more you serve God, the more you serve to advance the kingdom of God, the more you're going to multiply your generosity. Really, the fundamental question you have to ask after a sermon like this, which I get that it's difficult. I get that it's not an easy sermon to sit through. You wiggle, you squirm a little bit. Uh, you got to ask the question, according to the symptoms of your life, are you healthy? Are you living for the Lord? Are you making sure that you're advancing the kingdom of God? Are you advancing the kingdom of Hayden, the kingdom of Mike, the kingdom of Sally? Whose kingdom are you advancing here? The right answer to that is going to be the evidence of a healthy heart towards God. Let's pray. God, I pray that as difficult of a sermon that this is for our two-year birthday, what a wonderful birthday present, uh, to think about our own hearts and some real external evidences of the health of our lives as Christians. And I pray that a sermon like this is, is helpful and constructive in the life of this church and that it would, uh, God, in a real way, produce dividends in the church, this church's health and our mission to make disciples and our desire to take care of our families and to raise our children up in the wisdom and instruction of you. Uh, and that it would allow us to uh, turn the focus of ourselves, to stay laser focused on you and your kingdom as we are storing up treasure for ourselves that is lasting, incorruptible, unperishable, and undefiled, being protected by you until we get there. I pray that as our heart and that as our conviction this morning. In Christ's name, amen.